Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I am your host and narrator, Spring Heel Jack, and then I am back today with part three in our multi-part series titled Ghosts and Spooky Shit from the Old West, backed by popular demand. Thank you to all returning listeners for continuing to make this show possible, and uh, I would like to give a special thanks to Feedspot.com for featuring me in their top 10 list of anthology horror podcasts you absolutely have to check out. I would advise checking them out, and they did not pay me to say that. Um, to all new listeners, if you've ever been described as empathetic, sympathetic, or uh, sensitive, I'll give you a couple seconds to turn the podcast off because this show is most definitely not for you. All right. Let's get at it after one more thing, and that is I play advertisements during this show of that are from companies that don't exist, uh, that are sponsoring products that have never been made because I think they're funny and they break up the show. Uh, all creative property that's used in the form of a commercial on this episode is going to be the property creatively of Rockstar Games and not of this show. With that being said... invest in currency, stocks, or real estate. They aren't tangible assets. When the market crashes, you're left with nothing. Invest in something real. Get in on the next boom now with Floyd's Scrap Metal Emporium. Strip mining's been popular with companies. Now you can take strip mining urban as we strip mine a church or empty condo. It's the next economy that junkies discovered. Now you can cash in on it. Gut your plumbing. Melt down your knives and forks for cash. Take apart old electronics. Dissect batteries yourself and take out the lead. These days, buyers are paying top dollar for metal. Melt down your kid's tricycle or your aging mother's wheelchair and turn it into cold, hard cash. She's going to be dead soon anyway. Quit pushing her around. We'll see you at Floyd's Scrap Metal Emporium. All right, so we talked last week about a wide variety, if not just three, hotels that were haunted or resorts that were haunted. Today we're going to be covering old haunted trails and spooky-ass ghost towns, starting with the many mysteries of Old Garnett, Montana, in the northern Rocky Mountains. In the mountains west of Missoula, Montana, lies a ghost town where some say the past refuses to die. Born during the gold rush of the 1860s, Garnet was a rough-and-tumble mining town. The strike, however, was rich and its reputation grew, and by the 1880s there were more than 4,000 men working there, and they worked hard day by day, and they drank every fucking night. It was one of the many large ore strikes in the Montana Territory, and frontier trails led from other mining gulches to this high mountain gold camp, which rests in a glen at an elevation of only 5,800 feet. The boom was a haven for gamblers and gold seekers, adventurers and thrill seekers from every walk of life. There were stores and hotels and barbershops, and of course, a good number of saloons. You can't forget hookers, too. I'm sure there was no shortage of hookers. The, the book doesn't have that. Those honky-tonks were all a scene of continuous partying, as miners would bring in their gold and immediately spend it on drinks and hookers. Garnet, during its heyday, never lacked for excitement or for hookers. Nearly a century passed, and Garnet began to fall into ruin. The old wooden false front began to sag and collapse, much like the hookers. Age and weather were slowly bringing the past to decay, and the once thriving mining town was settling into the dust. 
Helping this natural process along was ongoing vandalism, theft, and occasional fire that destroyed valuable relics. The history of the area would soon be lost forever. <sighs> then, enter the heroic and oftentimes misunderstood Bureau of Land Management, using money that you paid that they allocated for historical restoration projects. Uh, they took steps to put old Garnet back on its feet as a tourist attraction. The buildings were restored and the signs were repainted. Weeds were pulled and the streets cleared of debris. After a few years of remodeling and rebuilding, the gold town that is the old ghost town of Garnet took on a new life. It also took on some old life, as it would happen. One man who can attest to this later was a fire control chief and caretaker named Carrie Moon, who spent three summers and one winter in the mid-1970s working for the BLM. That's uh, Bureau of Land Management, not uh, whatever else you'll find. Moon managed a firefighting crew during the summer months and spent the winter months guarding the restored town against vandalism and hoodret thievery. Old Garnet never rested, Moon said. The old town would quiet down when the tourists weren't there, but it never really died out. You could hear activity in the town almost at any time of the day. During the daytime, you could hear the sound of horses, and men, and wagons, regular activity that would have taken place back then. At nights, especially for some reason on Wednesdays, you could hear the sound of partying, singing, dancing, laughing, lights in the windows, honky-tonk music, and hookers. Moon mentioned that other members of the fire crew noticed the noise as well and even complained on occasion that they were having a hard time getting enough sleep. Hmm. But not one of them was going to write a report that stated there were ghost parties taking place in the dance halls of the saloon in a town that had sat vacant for longer than 50 years. We decided we were just going to have to get used to it, Moon remembers. None of us had gone crazy. We just realized that whatever was here, when there were people around, has seemingly brought them all back in death. And as everybody knows, where there are people... Ye will find hookers. Moon tells of how his dark would bark and growl and how the hair would rise on its back, and this happened so often that old Mooney became used to it. When the fire crew left for the winter, Moon found himself in Garnet alone, and the activity picked up considerably when there was nobody around to corroborate his story. He has spent considerable time speculating on the reason as to why. I don't know if it was because all the tourists were gone or because winter keeps people indoors up here, but the ghostly activity really increased. Somebody was knocking on my door almost every night, and there was a lot of noise downtown, almost continuous noise. I got so, I just had to ignore it and do my work. As he grew more and more used to ghost blowjobs and unusual phenomenon, Moon found himself growing more curious about them. He got used to the fact that the knocks on the doors and windows were made by those who never left footprints in the snow, and he finally realized there was nothing he could do to change any of it. He needed the job, and the ghosts of Garnet could, he, could have, have their way with him. Oh, wow. I think the worst thing was the forge in the blacksmith shop, Moon recalls, speaking of the building where the horseshoes were made and the harnesses fixed, for those of you that don't know what a fucking blacksmith is. I would hear that heavy pounding, heavy pounding, and think someone was in there, fucking off, fooling around. Then I would realize there was nobody up here but me and the hooker that I was with. There were times when Moon would go down to get his work done and the activity would stop. He'd go back up towards his cabin and sneak through the trees along the hillside and then just sit down and listen. See, he pulled a fast one on the ghost. That's when I would hear the most of the activity going on, Moon relates. It would be like they didn't know I was there and they would be going on with their activities as if 
They were the only ones around. Moon remembers the first time he went to investigate the honky-tonk music that was coming from the middle of the town. That winter in Garnet was incredibly harsh, and he found himself chopping wood constantly to keep the little stove in his cabin producing heat. He had to go out to the highway in a snowmobile to pick up provisions and get his mail. When conditions weren't suitable for snowmobiling, he was forced to use cross-country skis or snowshoes, pulling a toboggan to pile supplies on. During one storm, the snow was piling up deep, and the wind blew almost constantly, and the drifts filled in the streets and partially covered many of the buildings. So he was spending his time reading and writing hate mail, and then feeding the stove and himself. The mountain peaks were completely obfuscated by the snow clouds, and the timber was coated with bleak white. He began to wonder why he had taken on this assignment in the first fucking place. On that morning of the big storm, he was chopping wood and thinking about nothing in particular, and the flakes were fine and crystal-like, and they sparkled in the, in the bitter cold. But as he chopped, he heard the faint sound of music from somewhere in the old town of Garnet. Faint. Very faint, but the music was there, indeed. Moon laid down the axe and raised his head to listen. Above the howl of the wind and the driven snow, he could hear the sound of a piano. A honky-tonk piano. And he began to feel a chill that was not brought on by the winter. He no longer noticed the snow fell and melted against his face. He started down the hill towards the main street of Garnet. Who could possibly be up here in this goddamn fucking weather and why would they want to be playing a fucking piano? Everybody knows. Well, never mind what everyone knows about piano players. But he wondered if there might be skiers or snowmobilers in the area. But he hadn't seen anybody, so they must not be there, and he'd heard no snow machines. Maybe it was a Sasquatch. Maybe he hadn't even heard the music. I vote for that one. He began to chop the wood again, but the sound persisted. Piano music was coming up through the storm from somewhere in the town. Finally, he decided his job dictated that he investigate what was going on. If someone was up there, they could do a lot of damage, and he'd have to answer for that not having stopped them. So he took his rifle oh no, this idiot has a gun, and made his way through the snow into the center of the ghost town, and he walked slowly on his snowshoes, stopping occasionally to listen. Sounds like he was scared. The wind came up and skimmed snow from the tops of the drifts and whistled in the cracks of the old buildings, but the music was still clear. It came from fat-ass Kelly's old time in saloon, from behind the boarded-up walls and doors of the old drinkery, and gambling parlor, but there was no way to see inside. He still heard the music clearly, though. He decided to go around back where the saloon abutted a bank. In the early days, the saloon's second floor could be reached by placing a wood plank across from the bank to the second-story balcony. Wow. Looking up, Moon could see a snow-covered plank already laid across the door to the upper story. After listening again, he labored up the snowy slope and began to slowly work his way across the creaky, slippery plank. The music continued, changing different songs now and again. When he was halfway across the plank, the music stopped. He became frightened now, but he worked hard to calm himself, to keep him from slipping off the plank to a broken arm or leg below. Finally, he got back to the hill and took a deep breath, wiping wet snow from his face, and then the music started up again. He wondered what he should do. He decided he had to see what the source of the music was. So once more, after burning down a sizable bowl of meth, he started across the plank to the rear door on the second story of the building with his rifle kind of ready. After working his way across, this time the music continued playing. He hesitated in front of the door and melted down another bowl. 
When the bowl was finished, he reached out to brush snow off the doorknob, and the balcony floor creaked beneath him and grabbed hold of the support beam. The boards were sagging, and he worried as much now about falling through as he did when he... About what? He worried as much now about falling through as he did about what he might see when he finally opened that fucking door. When he did reach for the door, the music once again stopped. With his rifle ready, he opened the door anyway and stepped slowly inside. He was in an upstairs hallway that led to bedrooms. It was dark and eerie. Made even more desolate by the whistling of the storm through the aged cracks and splintered wood, a number of startled pigeons flapped from their roosting places and found their way through a broken window and out into the storm. The pigeons scared him, and when he finally regained his composure, he thought more about turning around and leaving than moving ahead. After hesitating, he went on to where a stairway led down to the main floor. The big room was vacant, with only the wind moaning in a weird way. He could see his breath and hear his heart thumping as he stood still and let his eyes grow used to the darkness. There certainly was nobody there, and hadn't been anyone there. But what bothered him the most was to see that there was no piano in the fucking place whatsoever. <laughs> Since that time, Kelly Moon has taken, or Carrie Moon has taken other jobs and now lives in California. He has often wondered what it was about Garnett that brought back the past in such a strong way, a way that seems unlikely ever to die. One theory is that the minerals in the area have preserved or recorded the life that once existed there. The mountains are filled with quartz, garnet, amethyst, and pyrites in numerous forms. It's thought the crystals may possibly have something to do with the energy that haunts garnet. Crystals, especially quartz, are known to have strong, strong, strong and strange properties that unify the four basic elements in nature, air, water, fire, and earth. As crystals are the bond of creation and link the earth and its inhabitants with the mysteries of the, or the mysterious supernatural. It stands to reason that the crystals around Garnet would harbor the spirits of its long-dead inhabitants. Whatever the reason for the ghostly dancers and the sound of everyday life that comes from another plane in Old Garnet, the fact of the matter is the town lives on in the past. Depending on the sensitivity of the individual, much can be heard and seen. Ghosts of the Old West linger and reach out to those who wish to touch them or pay a few dollars to have them touch you. Fly US. We founded this airline 30 years ago, and those are the same planes flying today. With a team of flight attendants that are old, resentful bags or angry middle-aged men who failed in life. Fly US. Sit back, relax, and shut up. Uh, on the on the subject of quartz crystals and shit, if any of you guys know anything about that sort of subject, the, uh, the study of the, the metaphysical like energy redistribution, that is something I'm curious to know about, and I'm not... Despite what I normally say, I'm not actually talking shit right now. I am ex pretty intrigued about that subject, because I can't find anybody that I take seriously on the internet, but I will take a listener seriously. So uh, feel free to email me. I will give you my email address after the show, and uh, just... Go ahead and write in, because it is something I'd like to know about. All right, let's talk about uh, the sinks of Dove Creek in Kelton, Utah, near... In the May of 1869, the Great Basin of Utah was the scene of one of Old West's most noted achievements. That was the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. A multitude of laborers, primarily Chinese workers on the Central Pacific side, had succeeded in bringing the locomotion movement across the vast expanses that was the Old West. The efforts of both sides culminated at Promontory City, 
thereafter named Promontory Point, Utah. And on that day, the crowd cheered and the bands played while gold spikes were pounded into the laurel tie with a silver-headed sledgehammer by dignitaries from both the Union and Central Pacific Railroads. A telegraph wire was attached to the last spike. And from this remote location, a message was sent that said the east and the west coasts of burgeoning United States were at last linked. Celebrations began in all the major cities from coast to coast. Locomotives and fire engines lined up everywhere to sound long, smoky blasts from their horns. In New York City, Wall Street suspended business while a hundred guns fired <laughs> continuous salutes in the City Hall Park. That just sounds like a fucking riot to me. Flag. Flags were hoisted everywhere in Philadelphia and bells at Independence Hall and all other churches chimed. But <laughs> fucking gunfire just sounds like when the Raiders win. Or lose, I guess. <laughs> An impromptu parade seven miles long clogged the city of Chicago, while the cities of Sacramento and San Francisco celebrated in similar fashions throughout the night. When it was finally over, and the headlines and the oratory had faded, the workers themselves faded from the saloons and dance halls of the city, and they left their tent camps along the grade and went to seek other work at different railway lines, or perhaps to seek their fortunes in the rapidly expanding gold fields in the northern Rocky Mountains. Many of the Chinese laborers made their way to the West Coast. One of their primary encampment sites was that at the site of uh, the sinks of Dove Creek, and it was completely abandoned. And it was abandoned for more than 100 years since the feverish laying of the track. The old labor camp at the sinks of Dove Creek has been abandoned to the vast reaches of desert all around it. Or maybe it only appears to have been abandoned. There are those who question even that. Some feel that an impression in time still exists there, that perhaps lost spirits of the dead laborers have returned to fill the energy they created in building the railroad. Whatever it is, something is there. One who knows that to be true is Steve Goddamn Ellison, a historian and park ranger now stationed at a prominent historic site in the West. Ellison is well-versed in the history of the West and deals in facts, but an experience at the sinks of Dove Creek on a night in September of 1979 led him to believe that facts are not always what they seem in the human mind. That night convinced him that there is more to be seen and felt than can be explained. He wonders now if the workers from very long ago have somehow made their way back to their old work camp, and if their energy may still be keeping the old Central Pacific locomotives active. Now you listen here, I know it sounds crazy, I know that. Ellison says, of his experience, and it scared me to the point that my knees were knocking together like a schoolgirl, but I'll swear it happened. A treacherous county road now occupies the old Central Pacific Railroad grade that once supported ties and rails for the trains that crossed the Great Basin. Steve and a number of his friends out on historic reenactment marches set up their tents at the side of the old abandoned work camp at the Sinks of Dove Creek. All the marchers were dressed in authentic army uniforms, similar to those worn by members of the 21st Inf Infantry assigned to protect the workers. So if they're authentic, does that mean that they're period authentic? Like they're wearing 150-year-old uniforms? Hmm. Ellison was walking the 2 to 5 a.m. guard shift along the old grade above the encampment. It had been unusually warm for that time of year, and the high desert was still simmering from the day sun. The men were exhausted from a long march, and they were all sleeping quietly. 
There was no moon, Ellison recalls. But the stars were bright and they seemed close enough to touch. I can remember patrolling along the grade with my rifle over my shoulder and looking down the campfire and tents along the bottom. It was very still and the lights flickered against the rows of tents and I couldn't help thinking that this must have been exactly how it were how it were back in nineteen er back in eighteen sixty nine when the transcontinental was being laid here. And suddenly everything didn't seem quite didn't seem quite right to me anymore. He heard a sound in the distance and he remembers. It sounded like uh, the muffled roar of a rocket. The night was otherwise still, and he knew the sound wasn't wind. He strained to see what was coming, but he couldn't. He could only make out a small light that appeared to be swinging from side to side until it moved off the grade down into a bush. Then he heard the muffled roar became more of a chug-chug sound, and it kept coming closer and closer, like a chug-chug-chug-choo-choo sound, and it increased in its intensity. Only these lights... Small dancing lights that appeared to be lanterns, but the sound held his attention. I was sort of rooted there, he explains. I was terrified and I couldn't move, couldn't see anything at all. But I could hear the sound coming straight at me, then this second sound seemed to rush up over me in a kind of blast right over my head and I couldn't believe it. In a panic, he made his way back to the camp. He stayed near the fire in front of his tent, becoming one of the shittiest guards ever. Looking all around him in the darkness, he couldn't control the shaking and trembling of his body, and he wondered if he was going to have a nervous breakdown. Finally, he got himself under control, and he knew he couldn't wake up the next guard because he wasn't due on duty for at least a couple of hours, so Ellison resolved that he would go back up the grade and stick out his time. After convincing himself there was nothing there that could hurt him, he climbed back onto the old railroad grade, slung his forty-five seventy Springfield rifle, back onto his shoulder, and he began to walk his path. That's when he heard footsteps and whispering. At first, I couldn't make out for sure what it was, he recalls. I began to get scared again, but I reminded myself I couldn't leave my post. Finally, when I settled down again, I listened carefully. They were voices, distinct voices. I came to the conclusion that they were Chinese. While he listened, he could make out snatches of conversation. He could repeatedly hear the words of, American, American. And the hair stood up on the back of his neck. That's just fucking... (laughs) It seemed like those voices had followed him from somewhere. Then he remembered San Francisco, where I spent the summer before. My Chinese landlady would always refer to white people as Amelicans. Every white person was an Amelican. Whoever was on the railroad guard that night had to have been Chinese. Ellison realized that the soldiers of the 21st Infantry assigned to protect the workers in in 1869 were likely referred to as Americans by the Chinese laborers. God damn it. Apparently, Steve Ellison, excuse me, Steve goddamn Ellison was standing in the historic past. Travel around the country in style in a recreational vehicle from Larry's Used RV Sales. Spend your golden years living on a bus with all the luxuries of home. A tiny stove, a minuscule toilet, and a shower that's like a dog pissing on you. Imagine spending weeks on end living in a tin can surrounded by 400 gallons of your own piss and shit in a holding tank. It's a true paradise and far superior to any hotel or rental home. Many of our RVs get up to six or seven miles a gallon downhill. Enjoy the nomadic lifestyle and visit RV campgrounds around this great country where your new neighbors in the vehicle next to you are either fun-loving meth heads or exciting and mysterious serial killers. Stop by Larry's Used RV Sales today. Or exciting and mysterious 
fun-loving meth heads, serial killers. Steve goddamn Ellison became convinced that nothing was going to happen to him. As he began to relax, he could hear more voices and feel the constant bustle of men working around him. He heard dull thuds that seemed far off, as if they were coming from somewhere beneath the ground, and decided it must be the spikes being hammered into the rails. He heard the patter of tiny little feet. Uh, the Chinese carried water on long poles over their shoulders, and the heavier footfalls of the bigger Irish, German, and other European men were working with the Chinese. And as he started to stare off into the abyss, into the grade of blackness, Ellison remembers seeing something else. A multitude of tiny pinpricks of light, like sparks flying from spikes and rails. It was as if hundreds of men were all pounding all at once. I just settled down and realized the past was being relived in its phantom form. It's oddly progressive for you, Mr. Steve Goddamn Ellison. The next morning, he discussed the events of the night with the others on the outing. A few questioned his experience and many even talked about things they'd seen or heard or felt since they'd been at that site or other ones around the West. Some of them expressed disappointment that they hadn't awakened when he was uh, there so they could share in the experience with him. It was the first time something like that had happened to me, goddamn Ellison says. I thought for sure everyone would consider me a nut. Who could believe all that anyway? As he later learned, there were any number of people who would certainly have believed all that, plus a little, plus a lot more. Uh, the old Central Pacific Grade has been the center of eerie stories through the years. People who hunt in the area know all the strange sounds and noises of the locomotive ghost train that still rides the old grade on invisible rails. Or the Those who know the area and are aware of its legacy seem to avoid it. That's why the road remains in disrepair. No one wants to travel where a ghost train might run them down. And if that isn't enough to bring fear, the voices and noises of the phantom workers probably is. Though few will talk openly about it, many look at one another and they'll just understand. Because before the tracks were dismantled, stories were told in private among engineers concerning strange trains coming at them on their runs through the desert. The engineers will attest that some of these ghost trains even had lights along with the noise. Terrifying lights that meant one thing, and that was another train was coming. It always astonished the conductors and engineers, for they knew that there couldn't be any other trains on this line, and it was something they never forgot. The experiences were similar. The engineers would see the lights and try to come to a stop, but even if they could stop, the other train would keep on going. Then the light and the energy and the sound would pass through the solid engine and disappear. And as for the workers, the local people still won't talk about them. They don't like to admit they can hear people they cannot see. But they don't like to think they can hear voices of people who have died either, yet they still do. But the sounds and voices are there at Sinks of Dove Creek. And when Steve Ellison and his companions walked along the camping area, they found numerous dugouts filled with weed and brush that had once been the underground parts of a Chinese labor camp. The hair on Ellison's neck and arms again tingled at the thought of it. I could feel them here as well, he remembers, coming and going, moving around me. Some of the others said they could feel them too. Goddamn. We didn't know what to do, so we just goddamn left. Ellison says that the entities at Sinks of Dove Creek seem to be lost, or to have been wandering around doing things they did in life, not realizing they should have crossed over by now. Some may argue that it wasn't actually the spirits, but some physical pattern left behind, some energy that keeps playing over and over. But Ellison has reason to believe they may be wandering souls who feel they haven't completed their work. He says the more he opened up, the more he felt their presence of strong emotion, determination, and something left in the environment from the rush of the workers to finish the line. 
He felt as if they needed some form of a release and couldn't find it. It's because there were no hookers here. I felt sad for them, Ellison says. God damn it, I even prayed for them at times. Whether or not the prayers will do any good is anybody's guess. Some may benefit and find where they're and find some where they should be, while others may linger on, working and waiting for the rush of the phantom engine ride that will take them on the invisible tracks out of the sinks of Dove Creek. We asked people, why did you move to the Grand Sonora Desert? I moved for the arid climate. I really wanted a safe environment for my children. I moved for the math. It's not a mirage. It's a real trailer park. Imagine your new dream home in the Grand Sonora Desert. Imagine life in a place devoid of it. A place where you can be alone, go on hikes, and die of sunstroke. It's a place too boring for plants. It's the Grand Sonora Desert. Come live where there's nothing there. Should be noted that Today is Cyber Monday, and I don't know if it's just me in my old age not being amused by anything, but the fucking lack of deals this year is fucking sad. Not that I was going to buy anybody anything anyway, I just like looking, but I think it's odd, and I just wanted to point it out because of this fact, that they're pushing those fucking DNA testing kits so goddamn hard. Why? I'll tell you why I, th I have a problem with it. Imagine that a political party in which you disagree with is seizing power or is coming to power. And uh, in an effort to take steps towards fascism, to remove all competition, they use your DNA from those tests that if you read the fine print can sell your DNA for research. They use the DNA to frame you for a crime that you will be found guilty of with corroborating DNA evidence and put you in prison. Hmm. Or perhaps you're a drug user and perhaps they want to get rid of all pot smokers in fucking Philadelphia. So on the address that you provided, police officers fucking kick in your door and give you the results of your DNA test, which is prison. I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot a lot of wiggle room with people to do shady shit with those testing kits. They scare me because I'm a drug using fascist. Not really, but maybe you can see my point. I'm not a po political podcast, so that's the end of that. Let's talk about the cabin in Browns Park, which is uh Browns Park is a historic site located in Northwestern Colorado. It was named after a fur trapper named Baptiste Brown. Brown's Hole. <laughs> That's fucked up. Brown's Hole, as it was first known. The old brown eye. Uh, became a place where mountain men... <laughs> Excuse me. Brown's Hole, as it was first known, became a place where mountain men rendezvoused, and later where trail-worn longhorns were pasteurized for winter. Or they were pastured, excuse me, not pasteurized. It was well known for its unusually open winters, whereas the rest of the Rocky Mountain region was normally buried in snow and cold. Whew! Someone's having fun with me in this book. When the range cattle industry grew in the West, large herds were pastured year-round. It was during that period 
that a well-bred southern woman insisted the valley be called a park and not a hole, for she considered the country far more beautiful than her brown hole. She succeeded, and the rugged piece of back country took on the name instead of Brown's Park, which uh, should have gone with, like, uh, never mind. But when the cattle industry, cattle industry flourished, Brown's Park was the scene of many a rancher feud and range wars. Blood was spilled, and it became known as dangerous country. Men on the run from the law were a common sight, and Brown's Park became a stopover on the notorious Brown's Happy Trail. Just kidding, it was the notorious outlaw. Today, the valley retains its beauty and splendor, as well as local legends. It's said that some of those who rode through here, and perhaps even those who died here, may never have left. Dan Cold Smith, a writer from Emporia, Kansas, can attest to that. Tall and formidable, Coldsmith writes Western novels about the heart of the frontier. He does not look to be a man easily shaken, but an otherwise calm winter afternoon in the late December of 83 left Coldsmith wondering if there are powers from the past that we cannot explain. Coldsmith was traveling in a pickup with his son-in-law, Mike, who then managed a large cattle operation along the Green River. The cattle were out on a winter pasture, and it was time to check how far they strayed from their home range. Checking for cattle on acreage as vast as Brown's Park is a job that demands a lot of driving and riding, searching continuously with binoculars for stray cattle that could be anywhere. On this day, Coltsmith and his son-in-law discovered some stray livestock that needed herding back to the home range. It was the beginning of a strange afternoon. Coltsmith looked over the vast country while Mike spotted cattle through his binoculars. Mike said, matter-of-factly, looks like they've done drifted over near Butch's place. He was searching the slopes near a run-down cabin just above the Green River. Coldsmith asked what Butch's place meant. He was told that the locals who know the history say the cabin was a frequent hideout for Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch. You know, the outlaw Butch Cassidy, Mike said. Yeah, of course. Coldsmith knew of Butch Cassidy. Most everybody, Western writer or not, had heard of the outlaw once portrayed by Paul Newman. Coldsmith was already growing excited. I certainly know what you mean. It's just amazing that we'd be near a cabin once occupied by the Wild Bunch. There was a little question in Coldsmith's mind that the cabin was likely what the locals said it was. It probably was a remnant of the old outlaw trail and a one-time hangout for one of the most notorious gangs the West had ever known. The Wild Bunch had spent a lot of time in Browns Park, right in this area of the deep backcountry. Coldsmith thought that now he was going to get a first-hand view of history. An old gun or even a shell casing would be a great souvenir. There had to be something there that he could take home to show that he had been in Butch Cassidy's cabin. Mike was smiling like a fucking idiot. Mike knew his father-in-law was anxious to inspect the cabin more closely, but there were cows to move and that work had to be done. After a 10-mile drive upstream to a rickety suspension bridge, Coldsmith was thinking more and more about the old cabin and its history. He helped Mike fold down the side mirrors and the pickups so they would clear the cables on the side of the bridge. Fuck that. Once across, Mike drove the pickup along a rutted trail filled with boulders and finally reached the vicinity of the cabin. Near an isolated corral, Mike whistled and scattered oats from a coffee can on the tailgate of the pickup. Two horses appeared and trotted over. They both ate oats while Mike bridled and saddled one. He swung up on the horse and pointed down the river. Take the pickup if you want, he said. The cabin is about a mile and off the left. I'll bunch these cows and see you later. The cabin was on the rise overlooking the river. 
Coldsmith walked through the grass and looked around. The location was perfect for a cabin whose occupants wanted a good view of the area. Anyone riding anywhere near this place could have seen easily long before they arrived. He stood near the cabin and looked into the vast country of rolling foothills and red cliffs, which pushed a wall of rising mountains. Seeing a posse from a good distance could give them time to decide whether to run or to fight. The cabin was weathered and most of the roof had caved in. Cold Smith strolled through the ruins for a long time, and considering the events that had happened and the stories that had been told here, it was intriguing to think Butch Cassidy could have called this place home. Standing in the doorway, Coldsmith felt the peace and contentment of the wilderness. The area had not changed since the days of the Wild Bunch. While watching an antelope that had once wandered nearby, he, or that had wandered nearby, he realized he was seeing what the outlaws had seen so many years before, and he began to feel as if he were back in time. He leaned against the door frame with his left shoulder and raised his right hand to place on the opposite side of the door. As he touched the door frame with his hand, it felt as if he activated a switch. Something he would never be able to explain was suddenly happening. It was as if somebody or something had entered his body. <laughs> Uh-oh. Brown's hole, he got entered. Someone penetrated him in Brown's hole. Something he would never be able to explain was, uh, yeah, there was now a presence within him, something undefined that looked to be looking out at the river through his eyes. It was an invading presence, but a contented one. A different consciousness that was now somehow within him. Mm. In that unusual moment, Don Coldsmith felt that he was someone else, and it took a few moments for him to recover his own consciousness. Something had suddenly happened, and just as suddenly it was gone. Though it was unnerving to a degree, it was not threatening. Instead, it was a feeling more of comfort and relaxation, as if somebody from the past had once again enjoyed the cabin at Brown's Peak through his senses. He will always insist that someone besides him was there that day, whoever it was, Butch Cassidy or someone else, had stood in the doorway before, slouching comfortably in the same position that Coldsmith had assumed accidentally. Hi, I'm Buddy Delmont of Buddy's Trucking. We're a family-owned and operated truck-driving outfit. Have you ever wanted to see the beauty of real America while popping Benzedrine and having sex with scary women in towns nobody's ever heard of? Well then, the trucking industry just might be for you. Finally, a job where you can smoke at work, poop in a coffee can and fling it out the window, and sleep at a rest stop surrounded by serial killers. Truck driving, it's the excitement of the open road, the joyful pleasures of the man alone in the middle of nowhere. Slowly going mad at his own thoughts, surrounded by society's flotsam and jetsam. Contact Buddy's Trucking and live the rest of your life out on the road. 10-4, good buddy. All right, so I actually did a little homework on this one because it sounded like the most believable, and I don't want to just write off every fucking thing that I present on this show as hillbilly ramblings. But Butch Cassidy was released from Wyoming Penitentiary in the spring of 1896, it said he returned to immediately to Brown's Point, or Brown's Taint, whatever the fuck that place is called, with some of the old gang, and took up residence there. One of Cassidy's close associates was a man named Matt Warner. He had a cabin along the Green River, not far from Lador. Warner's intention was to create a horse ranch, but with Butch back, robbing banks and trains was easier to make fast money. Warner, in later years, documented his days with the Wild Bunch, and I found that, uh... The quote that I'm about to read you, I found in his book, The Last of the Bandit Writers. It's when he talks about the cabin, and this is what he said. As I fixed it up and stocked it with horses, it became more and more the headquarters of my old outlaw and half-outlaw pals. Eliza Lay, who became a real outlaw after I left that section, and Charlie Krause, good-hearted old cattle rustler from Browns Park. And finally, Cassidy, 
heard I was back and came to live with me. My cabin was crowded every night by a drinking, poker-playing, and obnoxiously braggart-filled crowd. Hmm. With the passing of time, Browns Park remains the same. The rising peaks that surround the vast valley are unchanged, and the Green River bottomland that it's still winter pasture for livestock. This valley will forever hold the legend of the outlaw trail and the men who rode it, and it's part of the heritage of the Old West, and that will never die. Though the hoofprints of the stolen horses have long since been erased by time, and the cabins have fallen to the wind and the weather, the memories of those that were there, in some form we cannot understand, will always be alive. At Lombank, we're with you every step of the way. We sell your dreams. We're not a soulless, monolithic institution. We are, but we use nostalgic imagery. It's walking into your dream home. You can't really afford it. We'll lend you the money anyway. It's kids graduating from college. With pointless degrees riddled with debt. It's happy picnics on the beach. There's sewage in the water. Family portraits with everyone dressed the you look like twats. Canoeing in the lake. By the power station. Catching fireflies in a jar. And watching them die. Cheering at high school football games. The kids are giving each other brain damage. These are the things our lives are made of. Interest rates only 33.4%. Lombank. We're the American bank that truly more or less cares. About profits. Man, those fucking percentages are still better than anything I've ever been offered. And uh, I gotta include one for my consistent top ten state, and that is for Texas. This one's for you, and we're gonna talk about the Wolf Girl. Uh, predominantly around Devil's River, or the city of Del Rio, Texas. In the brush country, there's a legend that tells a strange tale of a wolf girl. But what began merely as a legend from deep in the last century seems to have somehow entered a realm beyond the ordinary a dimension that the human mind cannot understand. A dimension known as the Twilight Zone. Just kidding. Jim Marshall of Dallas is an avid bow hunter and hiker. He remembers how he and his two friends encountered something in the fall of 1974 that none of them could explain or fathom. It was there, and then it was gone. It was there, and then it was gone again! and the experience left them shaken and convinced that the open spaces of Texas can bring to the eyes visions that reach too far back into the mind to ever get rid of. I knew the story about the wolf girl at Devil's River, Marshall says, but I thought it was just that, a story. What we saw that evening couldn't have been just our fucking imaginations playing tricks on us, no sir. We all saw the same fucking thing. Marshall and his friends were hunting wild pigs. They were camped along the Devil's River, and after four days of hunting... They were becoming tired. I remember we had a fire going and the sun was just down. One of my friends said he was going to go get some firewood. He had no sooner left camp, ran back, face drained wider than normal. Uh, they asked him what was wrong and he said that they'd better see for themselves. Otherwise, they would never believe him. The three of them went out from camp along the river to where a well-used trail went down to the water. They stopped and looked around while the first hunter told Marshall and the other hunter what he'd seen since there didn't seem to appear to be anything there at the moment. But while he was describing it, Marshall saw something on the opposite shore that stood watching them. The only fucking way I can describe it, he says, is that it appeared to be a little girl, real skinny little bitch, with long hair and wild eyes, and even in the darkness we could see her. It was like she was in a haze, foggy mist, standing there partly bent over, 
digging into an ant mound. Suddenly, whatever we were seeing, poof, it was gone. I don't know if it vanished or moved quickly into the brushes. I was scared, and my mind started to clamp up on me. When the three men had recovered their breath, they returned to camp and immediately set to taking down their tent and packing up to leave. They worked fast, glancing around them and keeping three large lamps lit. They did not stop driving until they reached Del Rio. Selling your 40,000 square foot mansion? At Windsor Real Estate, we are the home of super prestigious real estate in Los Santos. Our experienced and knowledgeable professionals work hard. We look up some mansions on the internet, get the keys, give you a tour, and then make 6% on the back of the biggest investment of your life. Live the dream. Be the best you possible. For the man who isn't satisfied with one roof over his head, he wants several, preferably with a cinema, bowling alley, two pools, health club quality gym, meditation room, swinger grotto, punishment dungeon, 7,000 bottle wine cellar, moving sidewalks, 47 places to watch television, hidden cameras and two-way mirrors, no bookcases, a shark aquarium, exotic petting zoo, an 18-foot rotating bed. Windsor Real Estate. Real estate at the highest price imaginable. It's who you are. So the legend of the wolf girl of the Devil's River tells of an infant girl raised by wolves who spent her life hunting with a pack until she disappeared and was never seen again. Some say she was shot, while others say nobody knows what happened. But there's, there is evidence of that wolf girl living on the plains. The legend, however, began at the time of the Texas Revolution in a colony named after John Charles Beals. The colony sprang up in Dolores, Texas in 1834 and quickly fell prey to drought and fear of Santa Ana's marching army. It was unfortunate for the colonists who fled north along Presidio Road, uh, for they found themselves in the heart of the Comanche Nation. Most were butchered and left in the prairie to rot. Uh, just before all this, though, a woman named Molly Pertol Dent, with child, followed her husband up Devil's River from the colony to Beaver Lake to trap during the spring season. While there neither knew... While there neither knew of Santana or the flight of the colony in destruction, and John Dent was busy trapping while Molly grew even closer to her due date, it said that a girl was born to the couple in May of 1835 while they were still on the Devil's River, and as the story goes, Molly died in childbirth, and John was struck by lightning or otherwise killed while riding through a thunderstorm to reach the Picos River and find help. Days after the birth, Mexican she uh, shepherds found both John Dent's body and that of his wife, but no baby. The baby was presumed dead as wolf tracks all around Molly's body showed that a pack had been attracted to the stink of blood. The bodies were buried, and life went on, until nearly 14 years later when tales of strange sightings began to reach the campfires of Mexican shepherds and the wagon trains of 49ers bound for gold fields. They spent their nights discussing what a Mexican boy claimed to have seen tending a herd of goats. It is said to have occurred near what is now Del Rio, but was then called San Felipe Springs. The young Mexican shepherd told of trying to drive off a pack of wolves that was attacking his flock. With them was what appeared to be a young woman with extremely long hair that covered her face and back and a body with odd muscle development in the arms and shoulders. The boy ran back to his village to report the sighting. He was not laughed at, for Seminole scouts working out of the Camp Hudson for the U.S. Army already refused to go into Devil's River country. Some of the scouts had found hand and footprints among the tracks in the pack of wolves. Superstitious or not, the scouts would not go near the river country after that. Because so much was being made of this wolf girl along the river, a hunt was organized to see what truth there was to it, and as the story goes, the hunters found the wolf pack, trapped it in Box Canyon, 
trapped it in a box canyon, and the girl was captured with ropes while half screaming and half howling. She was examined thoroughly and found to be human, but oddly proportioned from running on all fours for great lengths of time. It's said that the girl was taken to a ranch house and locked in a bedroom under guard until it could be decided what would be done with her. Again, she screamed and howled and brought the wolf pack into the brush just outside the ranch yard. Whoa. Finally, the pack attacked horses and cattle in a corral and brought the guards out to drive them away, and the wolf girl went crazy and broke out. She was lost in the night with the wolf pack, and no other organized hunts could ever fool the pack again. In years that followed, there were reports from people who saw a girl suckling pups and attacking herds of sheep and goats with wolf packs, but she would always escape deep into Devil's River country, and no amount of tracking ever found her. In 1852, a surveying crew laying out a new route to El Paso reported seeing what appeared to be a wolf girl with two pups on a sandbar in the middle of the river. Again, the news spread in Devil's River country, uh, and it was the source of one of the strangest news stories ever to come out, uh, at least out of Texas. But for a long while, nothing else was heard about the wolf girl of Devil's River. The legend seems to have ended with the last sighting of the girl in the sandbar, but the story is confusing, and some variations say the survey crew or a different one succeeded in shooting her and then watched her disappear into the brush along the river, and there's no way to confirm any of these reports, at least where the wolf girl was last seen. But the story that Jim Marshall and his friends tell of the strange night during the javelina hunt suggests that the wolf girl might still roam the reaches of Devil's River in a form of a ghost. And that's going to be all for this week, guys. Thank you very much for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. Remember to check out that blog listing I was telling you about um, on, that is, on feedspot.com. And real quick, let's just go through our top 10 list for the last episode. All right, we have at the number one spot, Los Angeles, California, followed by Wichita Falls, Texas. Ashburn, Virginia, Chicago, Illinois, Illinois, excuse me, Black Heath, England, Bushwick, New York, Dallas, Texas, Tigard, Oregon, Fort Worth, Texas, Columbus, Ohio, and Texas, you never fail to disappoint. I appreciate all of you guys. Thank you very much. Please keep telling your friends about it. I love seeing new cities pop up on this uh, top 10 list for every new episode. I uh, have said it before, I'll say it again, I appreciate you guys, you're the reason that I keep doing this, because my ego is not going to stroke itself, and uh, I appreciate you guys for stroking it for me. Uh, as always, you can find information about the show, latest episodes, Patreon link information on anthologyofhorror.com, and please feel free to email me at springheeljack at anthologyofhorror.com. Uh, you can send me hate mail. You can tell me how insensitive I am. You can tell me how sensitive I am. You can uh, send me uh, questions, comments, concerns, general statements of whatever you want to say, requests for the show, so on and so forth. I welcome all of it, and I will try to get back to you as soon as I can. I know I'm not the best at returning emails in a timely fashion, but I will return them, uh, provided... It's not just, you know, fuck you, go die, because there's not much I can say to that. But I will respond. It may take me a while. It's nothing personal. It's just uh, I, due to my schedule, seem to suffer from narcolepsy, although it's undiagnosed. And probably if I slept more, I wouldn't suffer from narcolepsy. But fuck it, YOLO, as they say. So that's going to wrap up today's episode. I will talk to you next time.
in another spooky episode of the Anthology of Horror. And until then, stay spooky. Your grocery store defines what kind of person you are. Join the organic elite at the Grain of Truth and shop with superiority. Food has never been this self-satisfying. Featuring organic, natural, fair trade, macrobiotic, sustainably harvest, farm-to-table, goji-infused, antioxidant-rich, 7-grain, 12-grain, whole-grain, gluten-free, cruelty-free, vegan, vagina, non-genetically modified, zero-trans fat, free-range foods at prices you simply won't believe. It's that or are you more of the factory-farmed, genetically altered, hormone-infused, horse-meat-infected, slave-labor-harvested, agribusiness-supporting, obesity-causing common herd? We didn't think so. You're just like us. You belong. Shop with people just like you. People that drive hybrids and listen to public radio and argue about recycling. It's unscalable elitism for the sustainable crowd. Open up your mouth and look down at people. It's delicious. It's the Grain of Truth food stores. Naturally exclusive.